This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell and I'm very pleased to say welcome back to Plato's Cave, Emma Westwood. Hello. You've been away. It's only been two weeks, hasn't it? But we, we felt your absence. I actually was three weeks because I had a sickie. Oh, you did too? Well, yeah. Great so. to have you back. But speaking of sickies, <laughs> at the very last minute, Alexandra Helen Nicholas couldn't be with us. So we, we hope yeah. she's doing well. And and thanks heaps, Alex, for leaving us in the lurch at the last minute. Brilliant. <laughs> Tis the season. <laughs> no. I hope you get better soon, Alex. And Cerise Howard is, I don't know, she's still away. She's doing amazing things all around the world, very busy. Yeah. She yeah. will be back. We haven't ditched her. No, no, no. She will be back. Yeah, and a big thank you just again if to Mike. If she's lucky. If she's, if she's lucky, if she's not voted out. Um, a big thank you again to Mike Bartlett, who filled in the past couple of weeks. And we're going to have Mike back on, I think, in the in the near future. Um, really, really enjoyed mixing it up in the cave. Now, tonight, we're going to talk about two recent South Korean films that premiered internationally at the most recent Khan Film Festival. We'll be looking at the fantasy adventure satire Okja and the ultra-violent action-revenge thriller The Villainous. But before we get into the South Korean stuff, let's look at Lady Macbeth. This is the feature film debut of English film director William Oldroyd. It's an adaptation of the Russian 1865 novella Lady Macbeth of the Zexk <laughs> district. <laughs> but there's so many consonants in that word. How would you say that? Matensk? M- Matensk? Yeah, that's probably better. Matensk. Or Minsk? Yeah. Uh, I think Bensk is something else. But anyway, yeah, yeah, we, we, we get your drift. It's based on a, a novel, novella. Yeah. yeah, a Russian one. By, I can pronounce his name, but yeah, a Russian one by the <laughs> Russian uh, author uh, Nikolai Leskov. And it's been adapted for the screen by English playwright Alice Birch, who I don't know much about, but she sounds like she's absolutely fascinating. Now, relocating the action to rural England, but still set in 1865, Lady Macbeth is about Catherine a young woman sold into a loveless marriage as part of a property deal. Rather than put up with her thuggish husband and his strict father, she begins to take increasingly extreme measures to defy their authority over her and get what she wants. Mm. So I know we don't often compare notes before we go on air. We like to save it for air. But we did talk about this one, Emma, and you and I have completely opposite points of view on this film. (laughs) We do. We do. You're a big fan. I don't quite get what people got out of this film. Um, I'm going to defer to you to kick off the conversation. Oh, because I was going to send it back to you and go, give me the negative first. I, I, well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of the general <laughs> belief, actually, that it's, it's more interesting to hear from people who enjoy a film than dislike it. Like, sure. You know, right. I'm not a big right. fan of the, the negative rant, even when it's coming from me. But, um, no, I think let's, let's hear from you. And okay. Because right. I, I am... This doesn't happen to me a lot, but I'm genuinely a bit puzzled as to why so many people are enjoying this really? film. I don't get it. Mm, yeah, I see. I found this was a no-brainer in terms of why you would like it. So, 
Um, but then again, we don't have Alex here, and I believe that Alex wasn't a huge fan. I can't put words in her her mouth, but I know that she was uh, she was a fan of the one by Wojda. I can't sp- pronounce his name very well. Andre Wojda from 1962. You sound all right to me. Is yeah. that all right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Not that I'm the best judge, but <laughs> <laughs> Siberian Lady Macbeth. So this this film has actually been uh, well. It's you know uh, refers to Lady Macbeth. Um, the book itself is not about the character Lady Macbeth, so it's not Shakespearean. It's Shakespearean in behaviour rather than uh, a literal translation of the text. And um, uh, I think Alex particularly is a fr- fan of Siberian Lady Macbeth, which is by Andre Wojka from Wojta from 1962, which is a fantastic movie. I want to state that straight away. It's an absolute work of genius. So I feel that I don't know what Alex was going to come in with this, but I feel like for me it's not a case of either or. Um, it's it's a case of a remake being really surprisingly good. Well, is it a remake or just a new adaptation? Because I think these are different things. Uh, it's pretty close. Yeah, it's okay. a different, different end, uh, different finale, which is um, it would be interesting to know if the Wajda one was closer to the book, uh, different setting. But in general, very, very similar. In the way that I would say that I went and saw um, uh, Day of, not Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, uh, as a big, huge fan of the Romero version and saw the Zack Snyder version and was blown away and really surprised. Wasn't that terrific, yeah. I mean, j- just in general, I have no problems with remakes or new adaptations. I, I, I think they should be regarded in their own right. Yeah, and, um, yeah. People often go into them very defensively, getting upset that this sacred text is going to be ruined, which is silly because the they sacred do. text is still there if you want it. Absolutely. So I, I'm all in favour of, of remakes, and they, whether they stand or fall on their own grounds, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think this this uh, there's been a number of versions of this film. I don't think it's a, a text that has, um, uh, you know, there's one version to to jump off. Uh, there was also an opera which. Um, uh, Shostakovich wrote, which was really quite controversial. It was one that um, the, was seen as a criticism against the Soviets, and um, it was censored in Russia for a long time. So this this has this story has a huge a huge history behind it. But I love the way that William Olroyd, who is is a stage director, by the way, he mainly uh, is acclaimed stage director, has taken this and set it in a Victorian, a very gothic Victorian English setting and that it just transposes so beautifully to that setting, I felt. If you watch something like The Siberian Lady Macbeth, you see how it makes sense in terms of a Russian, a really hard-ass Russian setting, but it also works in the same context in at the parallel, a parallel universe, a parallel time in, in the English setting as well. And for me, I, I feel that um, a really good film... All the films that I really like have these lovely contrasts in them, uh, the light and shade, and this film has a lot of strong light and shade in it, which I, I really loved. From the Australian cinematographer too, and Australian mm. cinematographer, yeah, mm. metaphorically. Oh, you're talking in the metaphors. Yeah, sorry, yeah, and figuratively. <laughs> yes. No, in both ways. In yes. both ways, and um, yeah, Ari Wagner, who is from Melbourne. 
uh, not even Australian. She's she's a Melbourneian. Yeah. Uh, she, she she did a fantastic job with this, and it's a character that do, it's a, a film that doesn't have absolutes of character. So you have this Florence Pugh, who I found who plays Lady who plays the Lady Macbeth character. She is not Lady Macbeth. She's Catherine. Um, is I found just so incredibly charismatic, and uh, and right from the start, she was in a. She's in a position that you see a lot of in cinema where she's um, where a, a, a young girl is taken into a home or uh, in an abusive situation, particularly in a period film where she's under, I don't know, uh, sold into a marriage, for example, which is exactly what happens here. Um, there's something about her that she never seems totally a part of it. She seems always slightly above it because she's um, she's such such a strong character. And you actually start, I feel, you start by really liking her and going, yeah, good on her, good on her. Oh, for sure, and I then, think, yeah. And then this film manages to twist it and she becomes a totally different character. Now, I, I don't think that's wrecking the story. It's called Lady Macbeth, so you kind of know that the character's going to go a certain way in it, um, just by the title itself. But this does not just occur to her. It occurs to every other character in the film. I don't think there's one character that you could call an absolute victim or absolutely likeable. There's characters that start off a victim and then change in different ways, and they're all coloured in so many different different fashions. I found the husband she was forced to marry and his father so two-dimensionally bad men. You know, her... her, her, Really? It it reminded me the dynamic between her and her husband of the dynamic we see in the Sophia Sophia Coppola, um, Marie Antoinette. Ah, yeah. With the whole whole kind of loveless and very much a passionless relationship, except this was just so much more just kind of blunt and straight down the line. But didn't you get the idea... And I can't... can't, um, I can't reveal the story because it would be a spoiler, but that um, with the husband there was something revealed later on in him that showed that there was some level of compassion in him and a different... He wasn't just the maniacal husband. <laughs> did I miss that? I'm, maybe I missed that. I, I, I did lose interest. I, I struggled Another to... Another character that's introduced? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I do see where... You, yeah, yeah, sure. I, I see I see where you're coming from. But um, I just found the performances really, really on one note. And then the no same way. with the father. It was just such a kind of ye olde Charles Dickens type. I am a very strict patriarch. <laughs> I think that I think the father was probably the most one-dimensional, but yeah. I liked him because he was kind of so revolting. They just sort of really played up that that aspect of him. But from the fact that she went from the the lusty relationship with uh, Sebastian. The, the the worker, the farm the, the, the worker. Stable, the stable boy. The stable boy. Was he or can we just say he was? <laughs> Touche. No, 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 I'm just, I'm just, no, no, I just, I just, that sounds great, doesn't it? You know, the, yes. the affair with the stable boy. Yeah. Affair with the stable Well, you know, I found that this more than anything reminded me of um, – and I haven't seen the screen ad- adaptations of Lady Chatterley's Lover, but I have read the book, and it really reminded me more of that relationship. That sort of he's sort of salt of the earth, kind of wrong, but man, he's a good root sort of thing. That <laughs> came. Yep. Do you know what I? Do yeah, you know, I know what I mean? I, I hear it a lot. Yeah. And that was really because that scene where they get together is really rapey. Like everything, I found everything in the film was really there was a duality going if not a 
actuality what's three things at one time that was always going on there was never that absolute uh with any character see i just did not get any of that from this film i hear what you're saying and i I can i'm I'm starting to see now why somebody else might like this but for me it it felt like the filmmakers were twirling their moustaches going oh this will make them clutch with their pearls not at all and you know the moniker was popping out in delight and how shocking are we going to be now see i feel like i need to go (laughs) david (laughs) so i i I, I, I went into this thinking i'm going to be respectful and (laughs) i'm I'm resorting to silly voices i I, no, I, I just I found this so mind-numbingly dull and predictable. I saw every oh single God. beat coming a mile off. Even when it went really dark towards the end, I was like, "That I, was an amazing scene." You I didn't knew find that was that to be totally going to happen. And by that point, I was just a bit bored and depressed with it. I found yeah. that uh, the scene that you were referring to, the very dark scene at the end, reminded me in the way it was shot of something like Irreversible, the rape scene in Irreversible. Oh, see, well, I, see I, I thought it was... opposites for me. I mean, I think yeah. that, that scene, Irreversible, is one of yeah. the most challenging things I've seen in cinema. Th- this felt like such an easy... I mean, is it Goddard who made the joke about how do you emotionally move an audience, just shoot a kitten or something? Or what, what's the famous quote from Goddard about it's really easy to get a response yeah, from an audience? You I, just, I can't remember. But yes, yeah, you, I get it, yes. You, you commit some act of violence and something innocent and cute. And, oh, and no, I'm, but it was the way it was filmed. It was filmed yeah. remotely. It was from a corner of the room. It was without cutting away. It's, I just wish it they was kept really... going out the corner through the door and into <laughs> another cinema. <laughs> Thomas, yeah. you're so harsh. <laughs> also, I'd like to point out what I liked. Sorry. What I liked about this. I'm overplaying film. this dislike. I didn't hate the film. I just he's had a bad day, people. Yeah, I did. I did. I've had a bad few weeks. Um, <laughs> no, I, well, I, I really struggled to engage. So I would like yeah. to listen to you talk more because I think you've got far more interesting <laughs> things to say about it than my cheap shots. Well, it's interesting because the 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 uh, lady Siberian lady Macbeth plays a lot on the music and in a really dramatic fashion is was probably the want of 1962 as well, but drew from Shostakovich's music, which is just incredibly amazing. And um, so that was really prominent throughout that film. This film was the music was noticeably absent. It was there, but it was only at very pointed moments and I especially loved as well when you got to the end and it reminded me of I can always remember the experience of watching Bad Lieutenant the Abel Ferrara film and having completely silent credits and this all it had was the tweeting of birds and no music just over the whole yeah again I feel like we've seen this bit done before done better no, yep. it was done beautifully in yeah. this package. It was so beautiful. Alex's, I, I wonder if Alex's, you know, lying on the bathroom floor in uh, some sort of days listening to this at the She's moment. Because I'd be get interested it, get to Get it together, know. Cordell, and make a decent argument. <laughs> I, I think very broadly, I think my frustration was, it, it, for me anyway, yes. <laughs> we saw so such different films, it never committed to one idea. Like there are aspects of it that could have almost been revenge thriller, like really kind of fun, her kicking ass and taking numbers. And I kind of, there was that kind of energy to some of it. And then it got all repercussions and heavy and, you know, we're now going to get punished with the heaviness of where this film is going because of that. And then it got yeah. all very depressing and, and, and serious. So I found it, it totally was inconsistent for me. I see how you can make a very strong argument that that was deliberate, that was kind of the point. You meant to vicariously enjoy what she's doing and then feel ugly about it. I just found it irritating and I couldn't latch on to either vibe there. <laughs> um, and I, I felt like the actors are all 
on different levels in terms of their acting. I mean, what was the lead's what? name again? Um, Florence Pugh. F- Florence Pugh. I thought yeah. she kind of had this very kind of modern, kind of edgy, in-your-face performance, which I, I really liked, and it was almost yeah. a bit anachronistic. But again, she was sort of playing opposite all these guys in kind of Game of Thrones mode. I mean, I, I kept on picturing them with much bigger beards because they were also doing... <laughs> <laughs> I am man of the house type acting, and you were, you thought Cos, Cosmo Jarvis was as well. He was Sebastian. He was the love interest. Did you oh, feel he, that? And he was like someone from a Guy Ritchie film, sort of all being <laughs> all kind of laddish and. <laughs> I so didn't get that at all. Taking the young maiden around to the back of the stables. I thought he also. Now you, you'll probably use this as a. I'm probably feeding him with a, a cue here to lash, <laughs> lash out at it. But I thought it depicted boredom very well in the start of the film. The way, yeah, yeah I know you've, you're smiling. <laughs> <laughs> but just in terms of sound and everything, of her going completely nuts with the boredom, that ticking of the clock, their echoing hallways, the her staying there in the you know in the beautiful cobalt blue dress and against the browns of the place, her wanting to be in the outdoors and being told that she should stay indoors, it was much healthier for her. Um, yeah, again, it was all done so literally and blatantly. I think I think that was the problem. I did like the yeah. the stuff where she was forced to stay away. And that, that kind of that kind of cruel punishment of you wait know, for your husband, you need to stay awake. Boring as yeah. hell, husband. And and yeah, there is a lot of stuff, a lot of aspects yeah. about it in the start that I liked. But yeah, look, it's just one of these films that lost me at some point. Probably my fault. <laughs> And I couldn't Sounds get like on Sounds like it lost you at the start, yeah. <laughs> Thomas. No, no, it didn't. It, it, it yeah. didn't. I was with it for a little bit and I just couldn't latch on to it. And when I, did you turn, do you feel? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, um, it, just, it just dropped away. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I maybe when it introduced the seeds of what was going to become the more heavier stuff, I just saw the film ahead of me as a blueprint and saw exactly where it was going to go. And, yeah. And it didn't surprise me beyond what I thought it was going to do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I thought it wasn't necessarily super surprising, but, you know, as a film, I don't need a film to be super surprising It just as long as it's executed well, which I thought it was executed well. Well, well said. You, I mean, you got an awful lot out of it. You've said more intelligent things about it than me. <laughs> and a lot of people have really loved this film. Like, it's, it's getting a lot of, uh, you know, strong response. I think myself and Alex are in the minority. So, <laughs> <laughs> Lady Macbeth, um, be a better person than me and go and see it. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Okjur is the new film by acclaimed South Korean director uh, Bong Joon-ho, whose previous films include Snowpiercer, Mother and The Host. It premiered recently at the Cannes Film Festival, which was somewhat controversial, as it's since gone directly to Netflix, bypassing most cinemas around the world. Although those of you who caught it at the Sydney Film Festival are among the lucky few to have seen it on the big screen. Okja is about Mija, a young teenage girl who lives in the South Korean countryside with her grandfather raising Okja, who is one of a new breed of super pigs that has been developed by an American corporation as a new food source. When the company comes to take Okja away, Mija goes in pursuit of her beloved super pig friend and along the way gets mixed up with the media hype surrounding the pigs and a plot by the Animal Liberation Front to expose the uh, corporation for cruelty against animals. 
Now, Mija is played by emerging child actor Ahn Seo-hun, while the rest of the cast includes high-profile Western actors such as Tilda Swinton, Jake Gyllenhaal from Another Planet, <laughs> and Paul Dano. <laughs> He's amazing in this. Uh, the screenplay was written by director uh, Bong Joon-ho, um, Sorry, Bong Jong Ho and the English Bong author. Oh. Bong Joon, have some respect. It's terrible, isn't it? Pack a bong for Bong Joon Ho. <laughs> glad one of us went there and it wasn't me. Um, but he co-wrote the the script with English author John Ronson, who most recently wrote the film Frank and is the author of the fairly high-profile non-fiction book So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Mm. Uh, curious pair of collaborators on a very curious, curious film. <laughs> film. Are you a fan of this guy's work? Bong Joon-ho. Yep. <laughs> Bong Joon-ho, not Bong Joon-ho. Um, absolutely. Yeah, same. Yeah, absolutely. I think the host is just... A memory is a murder. Amazing. Love the host. Snowpiercer was his first disappointing experience. Uh, Snowpiercer is my favourite one of his. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) And I'm one of the few people who didn't quite get what the fuss was with the host. Really? (laughs) Emma, you and I are going to be dueling at at dawn by the end of the show. Uh, but Mother I loved as well. But I love Mother as well, yeah. He's a splendid filmmaker and I think what, what, the thing people often talk about and it certainly applies to this film is how he mashes together genres and how he gets away with extraordinary tonal shifts that Absolutely. I don't think many other filmmakers could pull off and there's some radical tonal shifts in this film. Uh, yeah, I think that for him... There were the tonal shifts in the host, for example, where you have the kind of comedy of the family, the family in grief comedy, which is a really hard thing to pull off because, you know, you need the pathos there. You need to feel that, you know, at one stage the family in grief uh, is is used when they think that their child has it being killed by this monster, but they play it out like a comedy scene, and it's played out. It's really pitch perfect. It's so difficult. You like it's kind of teetering on the edge there as a filmmaker to get it right. I feel that um, Bong Joon Ho gets it perfect in his Korean films. When he works, he crosses over into the English language or the English filmmakers and cast. He gets it some of the time, but not. All of the time. Do you think it applies to this one? Yeah. Really? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so that do you think it falls into what, too much camp fast territory? Is that the issue? Yeah, I think that I don't know what Jake Gyllenhaal was doing. Oh, so I really loved his performance in this. Oh, now I'm going to take you to task then. Yeah. How can you like that performance and hang it on Johnny Depp in Tusk? Oh, really? <laughs> Seriously. These performances. <laughs> well, I, the, the, the scenes in this film didn't go on for about 20 minutes of two deeply unfunny people doing comedy <laughs> riffing like in Tusk. Really? That's become the, that's actually, the yardstick? I actually feel like I don't think that Johnny Depp was good in Tusk. No. And I don't think that Jake Gyllenhaal was good here. And I actually oh, really? feel... I, no, 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 I thought I didn't this was like a splendid it. performance. No. It was I big. Thought, I thought it was big, but mm. I thought, what the hell? are you doing and I didn't feel that the character hinged on anything it felt like he was in a different movie and not interacting with the other characters in any way I just didn't I didn't understand it it was like he just took the it was like he took the bone and ran with it 
But you didn't think Tilda Swinton was very much dialed up to 11 as well? Absolutely, and Paul I Paul Dano as well. I mean, yeah. I think everybody was on a very high level of... I think Paul Dano was the only one. I think Paul Dano, because he's kind of got a level of... He had a, a lower simmering level of kook, a Crispin Glover for a new age that sort of goes through his films now, like Swiss Army Man that uh, we talked about last year, <laughs> yeah. similar similar type of thing. I felt that that... That worked. Tilda Swinton, see, I didn't... I thought she was she was great in Snowpiercer. Did she have the teeth thing going in Snowpiercer as well? Yeah, she definitely had weird... I've seen that, yeah, I went... Going I've on seen Tilda with those teeth before and I just felt that maybe... It just felt like Bong Joon-ho, Mr Bong, as I've had the pleasure of interviewing him and all the South Korean pleasantries, you call him Mr Bong. I think it's really sweet the way they... <laughs> They're very polite. Um, he, I think that's normal in most countries, but Australia actually, <laughs> definitely Asian countries. Yeah, yeah we're like, g'day, mate. Yeah, and you, you know, no, I'm not like that at all. Um, but he, he, I just felt like it felt like he was doing a favour to put Tilda in there again and just let Tilda do a thing. I didn't really feel like she, I would have liked to have seen another. Um, another actor do that character, put it that way. I really enjoyed her in this. And I, mm. I thought um, I, I liked the level of kind of camp hysteria it was pitched at and the way they used that to move. To, I mean, the film starts off feeling like a family movie, a kind of wacky it kids' adv- adventure, and then it starts moving into kind of slapsticky comedy and kind of almost a heist thing. And by the end of it, we're in really dark serious confronting territory and i and i like how the rug gets really pulled out under your feet and and how this kind of depiction of the kind of hyperventilating corporate culture and reality tv hype is a front for some very yeah. dark and sad things but I, see i found that that's a storyline that's been played out heaps the, the well, corporations kind of, are bad, it, well, sure. Yeah, and reality TV, you know, that kind of... T- it, it, you know, go back to the 1980s with Paul Verhoeven, Robocop and everything, you know. Yeah, but I've never, I've never seen it done like this before with this kind of very... Um, Anthropomorphised animal. Paul Verhoeven's an interesting yeah. director to compare this to, actually, because he, he definitely works in a similar kind of high camp but dark. But I, even he, I don't think, does the kind of very radical shifts in um, genre that you get with this. I mean, this, this starts off feeling like a Spielberg kids film. Yeah. And by the oh, end no, of no. it, it... Except it, for the F-bombs that it, are dropped right yeah, at the start. Yeah, <laughs> and, and those F-bombs are really um, disarming at first because yeah. you think, well, that doesn't belong here. Or, or, or I mean, My thought was, why, why do they do that? Kids could watch this film. What a shame. And then by the end of it, I'm thinking, yeah, it's a good mm. thing there's F-bombs there at the start yeah. to make sure kids aren't watching. Well, it, was, it, it had a lot of E.T. in it as well. Yep. Very much so. I felt that, and obviously a strong "don't eat meat" message. Well, I don't know, I, I don't it know if it was that. necessarily saying that. I think it was an expose on our blasé attitude towards meat consumption. Like what I found quite confronting was how a lot of the justification for the production of this meat source didn't feel that that they weren't maniacally evil. The, the yeah. plot it was actually standard business practice. I mean, what we saw ultimately in this film was capitalism just doing its thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I've seen that in a lot of films. I've seen it in a lot. David Cronenberg, all his yeah. stuff around the corporate, you know, that manipulation of the corporate giant and the whole idea around food production. I mean, I think people are the most aware they've ever been now of, uh, you know, where their food comes from and that whole... I mean, there's even a whole series on TV of, um, you know, farm to plate 
food, people bringing up their their animals to slaughter them themselves. Um, I think people are, but I think it's a convenient thing a lot of us forget. I know I certainly do. I um, yeah, go well, through phases of trying to be very ethical and then it just slips from mind again. I, I, um, I think this film did some really interesting things. Oh, look, it did... It, I say that now I'm sounding like maybe I'm trying to get back at you for Lady Macbeth. I wasn't wasn't going to say anything. (laughs) I'm kind of sounding like I absolutely hated this film, but I didn't. Mm. I went through, by the end I kind of went, oh, okay, that's all come together. But I I sort of rode little waves through it. And then there there were moments that I absolutely loved. At the start I thought with the kind of plinky, plinky guitar acoustic music it seemed like a little, like that safe children's, Film. Then it went into sort of like Eastern European klezmer music. Yeah, <laughs> that was really interesting. It worked really well because it had that caper feel. It was with the action scenes, and then it went into that. I thought that sequence with John Denver's Annie's Annie song was just spectacular. Mm-hmm. I love that. And that went into slow mo, and it had the kind of pathos that went with it. And then it went into Isley Brothers funk. I mean, you know, the 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 way this film. Like you said, the way he moved through everything, I applaud him. I definitely applaud him. I just don't think it was 100% pulled off here. Whereas I have seen him do it, maybe not to as as extreme a degree, but definitely do it in his 100% Korean films. Yeah. Look, I wouldn't say this was my favourite film of his, but I I Mm. thoroughly enjoyed it and and was really impressed with how unpredictable it was. Yeah. Um, And also, getting towards the end, I started to get really worried about how far is he going to push the confronting stuff in this and I think he got it just right. I think he showed just enough and it wasn't anything too far removed from the realities of industrial farming. Yeah. Um... So I think he showed just enough without it being too unbearable. And and there's a little touch at the end where they show us just how intelligent or at least emotionally intelligent these super pigs are, which did kind of break my heart. There's oh, a little uh, detail at the end I found incredibly powerful. Absolutely. I was, I was nervous mm. because I thought these are the sort of films that I think ever since I saw Bambi's mum die in the Bambi Disney film, I'm, I'm always fearful that of these anthropomorphized animals, whether films whether I'm going to be able to cope or not because they are the true heart string pullers um, but like you said it did get that balance correct without really tipping you over the edge so you go to bed a sobbing mess we, <laughs> although I've noticed that Netflix have released a series of um, videos for you to help come down after watching it oh, on, really? on, their, on their Facebook page they've got um, just videos of cute animals doing cute things just to help you recover from the experience of walking, <laughs> watching a show did you, is... no, did you notice this was uh, executive produced by Brad Pitt um, same as The War Machine I didn't notice that. Yeah, it's the same company, Plan B Entertainment, as the War Machine. So, well, I think this is a lot more successful than War Machine. I agree. Yes, I do. Yes, we agree on something. Okja <laughs> is actually available right now on Netflix. We've got another South Korean film to discuss in just a moment. You're listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas and Emma. Three triple. The Villainous recently premiered at the Cannes Film Festival as one of the festival's midnight screening films. It's a South Korean action film by Jung Boing... Oh, Boing Gil. Sorry, it's just... He's mm. on the trampoline. Boing. Oh, don't. Don't. That's bad. 
Um, he's only made one other narrative feature film before this one. The villainous stars uh, Kim Okbin, who is previously best known for playing the female lead in Park Chan-wook's 2009 vampire film Thirst. Here she stars at Suk Hee. She stars as Suk Hee, an elite and ruthless assassin who at the beginning of the film is busy avenging her father's death in a murderous rampage. After being caught by a covert South Korean intelligence agency, she is given a new identity, new training and the promise of freedom in 10 years' time, providing she works for them in the meantime. Its narrative similarities to Luc Besson's um, La Femme Nikita are blatant. It's thematically similar to Kill... It's thematic similarities to Kill Bill have been noted and its visual similarities to The Raid are apparent. Does this extremely R-rated action film stand on its own two feet? Does it? Does it? (laughs) Shall I declare where I feel? (laughs) Jump in. Hell yes. This film was a giddy... Dazzling, brilliant <laughs> thrust of adrenaline craziness that I adored from almost every single frame until the end of the film. Although it was all shot digitally, so we can't really say frames. Yeah. I, I, look, I think there's a, there's a slightly sluggish bit around the middle where it goes a bit too plot heavy, but the kinetic action in this is unlike anything I've seen before. And kind of crazy plot. I mean, it's all really stupid plot, really. It's funny. But it doesn't yeah, matter. People are kind of complaining matter. about how convoluted it is. And it's like, but that's part of the kind of the giddy rush of it yeah. all. When you've got flashbacks and within flashbacks and then there's doubles and people with different identities and people getting uh, plastic surgery against their will to look differently. <laughs> yes. And I just love the craziness of it all, which is just all they're in service to deliver the this amazing series of action sequences. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's definitely bookended with a couple of absolutely spectacular scenes. Did remind me of the... You mentioned the raid, um, especially at the start because the raid has that manic opening sequence. And I think this sequence goes for... I clocked it at around eight minutes. It's about that. And I don't don't think it's a single take, but it creates the illusion of a single take. And it's it's mostly first person. I mean, that's it's like that kind of shooter video game thing, which doesn't always work in cinema, but um, here it's got a real kind of energy and dynamic flow to it. Yeah, it's really hard to imagine how they managed to choreograph it. It's quite a fisheye lens as well. So it kind of creates... Guessing a GoPro, mate. Maybe yeah. on the head for a lot of it. Um, yeah, but still the action, just choreographing the action, even if it was in spurts, yep. they'd have to still be long takes of those. They're not really shortcuts, you know, yep. and it's 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 crazy. And it does tell you exactly what it is right from the start. So this is a film that do not miss the opening because you will miss the film. Oh, come in late. <laughs> yeah, if you come in late, you've just, <laughs> yes. why bother? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this film, you sit there, you'll, you'll sit down, it'll hit you in the face and you'll decide straight away whether this is a film for you or not, <laughs> basically. <laughs> it, I Look, I, I mean, most of the film I was just in the moment of this film, but there, there were times where I was just wondering where did they place the camera for that shot or how did they move the camera around that motorbike flying through the air oh, no. to depict all that. I mean, I would, I, I've actually done a quick internet search and there's not a heap of info out there. Um, I'm assuming that maybe some drones were used or, yeah, or there is an could- awful lot of digital trickery that we don't know about. About yet, I, I, I suspect it, it's got a huge amount of digital effects in it, but they're made to look ultra gritty and real. Yeah, yeah. I think because it is so fast that they could have done that, but it doesn't give the feeling of cut, cut, cut. 
It no, does it's not give, Michael Bay fast. No, is it? no, yeah. it gives a feeling of continuous action, which I I really love. And also, you know, I think that every year I always want that Korean film that's going to be like this. And I wasn't sure what it was going to be this year. And this. I think is the film. Like you've got the, you know, the old boys and then like I saw the devil. This is in that realm, you know, completely crazy over the top, but that incredibly visceral, exciting experience and also something that is... You know, where's its filmmaking hard on its sleeve? I mean, you know, it's very derivative. You're not going to, um, you're not surprised by seeing, like, there's a Matrix fall where they, you know, a character falls, she falls into the laneway and she's like, you know, that one knee on the ground and, you know, and then there's the... <laughs> so cool when the, done right Yes, <laughs> and then there's the, the emotional crying in the shower scene, you know, which is like, well, I don't know, numerous films. James Bond's Casino Royale, I think, had that. Mm. And even Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia had that scene, you know. So it's all, it's sort of stringing together a whole lot of stuff that you've seen with stuff that you haven't seen. Does that make sense? It does. It's funny yeah. because a lot of the show you and I have exchanged blows over this idea of films doing things we've seen before. And, yeah. You know, we have been challenging <laughs> each other on what, what makes this film special. But in the case of The Villainous, I think we can agree we've seen an example of a film that does a lot of stuff we've seen a billion times before, but it does it so incredibly well. And that's that kind of aesthetic of repetition or kind of repackaging a lot of these visual tropes um, is yeah. remarkable. And I think you're right that, that they mix it up with a kind of kinetic kind of uh, aesthetic that we, we we haven't quite seen to this extent before. I mean, I think that the, the raid, there is certain um, visual similarities, especially how you have the feeling of the camera following the lead person wherever they're going. Yeah, exactly. Um, I kind of got a bit of a Gaspar Noé buzz out of some of it as well because the camera oh, no, has I get that. I get that. such a dreamlike... Mm-hmm. kind of it goes all over the place and at one point it's the point of view of the character another another moment it's the point of view of god another point it's completely objective and exactly. it just all flows together in this one kind of great collection of giddy visuals and the and the, <laughs> the, the kill bill la femme nikita i mean there's one scene where it's actually the two films together which is her in a bridal dress in the bathroom yep shooting out through the the fan in the window and you're just like oh, it, but it's exhilarating to see somehow this mashup is really exhilarating because it's honest it feels honest in what it's doing it doesn't feel like it's like let's just pretend we're not you know we're, we're kind of slipping under the radar. But um, I just want to say though Kim Okbin who plays the lead character is just absolutely sensational she goes from angelic pope face to complete shrieking banshee and i love her we're going to see her (laughs) and we're going to see this director doing so much more this is a major calling card i mean it's a benchmark film i think this has just raised the ante yes if this came out of america i think every single movie magazine in the world would be covering it totally giddy with exhilaration i think this is new extra level stuff emma i'm so glad you and i agree on a film <laughs> You've been listening to Plato's Cave. We have discussed Lady Macbeth. It's on limited release through Sharmil Films. Uh, Okja is a Netflix original available on Netflix. And The Villainess, the one we both liked, is on limited release courtesy of China Lion. You have been listening to Thomas Cordwell and Emma Westwood and Plato's Cave. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. 
truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.